This is the Masters of Cinemacast. My name is Joachim Thiessen, and today I have with me Bilge Ebiri from New York. Thank you so much for joining me, Bilge. Thank you. It's great to be here. You are based in New York. You're a film critic and writer for Vulture and New York Magazine, and you've also contributed essays for Criterion Collection and uh, Masters of Cinema and Trances, haven't you? Yeah, uh, well, for Masters of Cinema, I, I recently did an essay on uh, trances for their uh, the the World Cinema Project uh, box set, mm. and then for Criterion, uh, the, I recently did an essay on Dry Summer, which was a part of their uh, World Cinema Project um, box set, and then uh, last year, or maybe it was the year before, I did. Um, I did an essay for Criterion on uh, Hideo Gosha's uh, Three Outlaw Samurai. So, mm-hmm. uh, But you started uh, as a filmmaker, didn't you? Yes, I, I, I did. I started off, you know, film criticism was something that, that I'd always read and been interested in. It wasn't something I, I fashioned as something I could do, not because I, I looked down on it, but because I just didn't... I, I didn't necessarily think that I was that I would have been that good at it. I still don't know if I'm mm. any good at it. But but um, <laughs> but you know, film uh, you know, f- filmmaking was something that I w- had always been interested in, and that, that you know that was what I went to school for. G- going into the world of freelance uh, writing is is easier than going into the world of filmmaking, even though uh, neither of them you know brings you much money at the beginning. Um, so I, mm-hmm. so I, you know, kind of went down that path. But I, all along the way, I've kind of written uh, film criticism and made films at the same time. It wasn't, um, you know, I, I didn't see the two as mutually exclusive. I, I, I still don't. I mean, when I was making my film back in, you know, two thousand two, two thousand three, I was still filing weekly reviews. So, mm-hmm. do, how do how do you feel like your criticism angle informs your filmmaking angle? I, I would actually probably look at look at the relationship in um, the opposite way, uh, just because okay. I haven't made a film in such a long time. I mean, I I, I made a short back in two thousand five, two thousand six. Uh, that was the last film I made. I've I've written a number of scripts since then, so it's you know I, I haven't given up on it. But uh, it, during that period, my my profile as a critic has risen. I would say, you know, considerably. Um, mm. So in some in some weird way, I feel like my experiences in the world of filmmaking perhaps inform my 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 criticism more than the other way around. Well, if anything, uh, you know, when I was making my film, in some ways, I, I thought to myself, or when I was making my feature, there was a part of me that that kept wondering if maybe having gone through the world of criticism was was hurting my ability to make the film. In some part, because you need a certain amount of naivete to make a film. I mean, you need um, you need a certain amount of. I think I think a film critic, even though film critics are are um, are often taken to task for being you know very harsh on films or or not respecting directors or whatnot. I think film critics, in many ways, are very aware of how difficult it is to make a film. Uh, because hmm. because we see so many bad ones, or maybe we're we're probably very aware of how difficult it is to make a good film, because we see so many bad ones. And in fact, one of the things that that made me decide to make my first feature was really just having seen so many 
terrible movies, terrible extreme low-budget movies, because that was kind of the beat that I was on. I rarely got to review the big studio movies that came out. I was always reviewing the, the tiny movies that were being, you know, self-distributed in, you know, tiny theaters, some of which were great, but a lot of which were unspeakably bad. <laughs> and I remember just thinking to myself, I, I can do better than this. I mean, <laughs> I, maybe I'll just make a film that's merely bad as opposed to incredibly awful, you know? I mean, there was part of me that was thinking in that way. But as I was making the film, I, I kept thinking, you know, anytime I wanted to do a shot or wanted to come up with a certain thing, uh, you know, either a stylistic device or, or, or a scene or anything, you know, immediately in my mind, there would be like 15 examples of other films that had done it. Hmm. And, and I would think to myself, oh, gosh, somebody's already done this. And then I thought, well, this is no way to proceed. I mean, if, you, if you're just com completely obsessed with what other people have done, and you're constantly aware of what other people have done, and you're just constantly trying to avoid it, you might not ever get anything finished. I mean, um, <laughs> I mean you obviously want to do something new, but you also don't want to put yeah. yourself in a position where you are completely paralyzed because hmm. everything seems to have been done already. And a way of learning your craft is... By imitation. Exactly. Very good point. But um, a thing you mentioned about critics perhaps being more observant to how films are difficult to make. I'm not sure I completely agree because I read so many reviews that they accredit editing to something that the scriptwriter has done. Or yeah. they accredit um, acting choices to uh, the script and not the actors or yeah. the director. I feel like there's there's so much misunderstanding. If you haven't made a film or if you haven't been through that process, I don't think you can completely understand. Or there are many, at least, that try to they try to come off as though they understand every uh, technical aspect of the film, but um, they they seem to misplace the uh, the glory somehow. Um, and you know, you're you're you're, you're... You're totally correct about that. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. I, I think part of it is because, I, you know, you can you can look at it certain ways because I'm sure I've done that as well. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm very self-conscious of that. But but there's a certain point at which I, I throw up my hands because you don't always know who's done what on a film. Um, I mean, you, you hmm. have the, the credits, but, you know, there are some directors who, who are very good about pushing their crews in in, in ways that, you know, they're not necessarily always prepared for and then there are some directors who like to sit back and kind of let their let their crew and their cast do their job and i think you know and and then there are you know there are directors who kind of are some somewhere in between and yes i mean something like editing you know certain films are are you know saved in the editing room by their editors hmm. so some films are you know, some performances are saved in the editing room by by editors and directors. So, so you find yourself in this weird situation. I mean, and 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 some directors who have this huge reputation as auteurs are, in fact, you know, the the, the directors who give the most free reign to their uh, to their cast and crew. I mean, one of the things that um, I mean, one of my favorite filmmakers is Terrence Malick. And he's, hmm. you know, I mean, he's Malick, right? I mean, whenever a Terrence Malick film comes out, every every single choice on screen is attributed to Terrence Malick. And I do that hmm. too. I mean, 
and, and he has, I mean, uh, the way he makes his films now is he has, you know, like little armies of editors kind of just experimenting and, and trying out new things. And then he just kind of goes around and decides the ones he likes and in some cases doesn't even watch the final film from beginning to end. I mean, this is one of the most, you know, alpha male auteurs of our time. And yet, really, I mean, a lot of the editing choices in his films are being made by, you know, these these incredibly talented, hardworking and probably underpaid, you know, 25 year olds sitting in a room mm. somewhere in Austin. So, <laughs> I, you know, what do you do with that kind of knowledge? I don't know. You know, so mm. sometimes, you know, you do your best. Some some critics, uh, it's true don't quite understand how a film is made. Some critics, I think, go out of their way to not try to understand because to them it probably ruins that the illusion. You know, for me, it's, it's impossible for me to not think about that to, to a certain extent. But there was a period, I mean, when I was first making films, you know, as a student and, and first learning the craft, it was almost impossible to watch a movie and, and see it as a, as a whole, to, to sit down and actually mm. watch a movie from beginning to end and be able to assess the movie as a movie, I was just constantly distracted by, oh, you know, what kind of light is that in the background? You know, oh, there's a little dark patch there. They missed that. Or, you know, that was a funny edit. You know, I mean, like these little tiny things. I mean, the film stopped being uh, an entire entity and, and exploded into a million little pieces. And it, and it took a while. It took a couple of years before I could start seeing films the way, you know, one is supposed to see films as, as kind of these unique narrative entities and when you approach a film now do you do you do it in one big viewing do you gauge your emotions when you're watching the film do you think about it afterwards or how do you approach it um it depends i mean it depends on it depends on the context in which i'm watching too i, I mean nowadays most of the films i don't know if it's most of the films a lot of the films i watch are essentially are you know as we know films that i have to write about and the way it works is very often, uh, I mean, just the, the weekly grind of, of reviewing movies, you don't necessarily always know what movie you're reviewing until that week. And usually it's, you know, three or four. So you're watching movies and you don't have a lot of time to reflect on them. In some ways, you don't know if it's, you know, because of your own mistake and how you kind of scheduled out your week. But um, and sometimes it's because, you know, the studio isn't screening the movie until Wednesday night and your reviews due Thursday morning. Or in a lot of cases, for me, I don't get to see the movie until Thursday night when it actually opens and I go buy a mm. ticket uh, and then spend, you know, the night reviewing, writing my review and then file it first thing in the morning so that it can be up on Friday. Mm. Um, I mean, that, I just did that with... Um, well, there's a new Tyler Perry movie, and Tyler Perry movies are uh, notoriously not screened for critics because most critics hate Tyler Perry movies <laughs> because Tyler Perry is awful. Um, and, uh, you know, so I had to go see it Thursday night. I, I mean, it's funny. It's, it's become this ritual for me. I think, I've, I think I may have seen every single film Tyler Perry has made at this point, <laughs> most of them in theaters. And, you know, the studio probably thinks, oh, it's good for you, know, you to see a theater. You go, you know, there's a big audience there. And they're laughing and they're enjoying, so the critic will probably have better context in that sense. Absolutely not the case. I mean, every time I go see a Tyler <laughs> Perry movie, there may be two or three people in the audience. One side, last one, not this last one, but the one before that, I was the only person in the audience. I mean, it was a giant empty room, 8 p.m. on a Thursday, you know, right you know, around Christmas time, which is supposed to be a big, big period for, for, um, for, for film releases, especially a movie about Christmas. 
And I was <laughs> the only person in the audience. I don't know that that affected me one way or the other, but it certainly wasn't this, you know, communal, you know, laugh riot experience that the studio probably had hoped I would have if I if I went bothered <laughs> to go see it. So, but yeah, I mean, so and then, but then there are certain films. I mean, look when I when I write a Criterion essay, I don't do that. I mean, I, when I write a Criterion essay, no. I or a Masters of Cinema essay, you know, I, I I start months in advance. I watch the film multiple times. I try to talk to other people I, I i write i read everything i can about the film you know and, and that's a very different experience and then you can kind of sense certain things in each way each each approach has its advantages and disadvantages you can in some ways it's better to see a film completely free of context and to just experience it without knowing anything about it uh, or the mm. circumstances in which it was made but I would argue that sometimes there is great advantage to seeing a film, uh, understanding the circumstances in which it was made. I mean, a film like Dry Summer, you know, while it's, you know, one of the crown jewels of Turkish cinema in the 60s, is I don't know that it's a film that, you know, if you threw it out in theaters today, that people would, you know, would, would fall over themselves in seeing. Maybe they would. I mean, it has a lot of, you know, impressive qualities, but, you know, it has a lot of rough edges and you know, you kind of have to understand that it's it was being made in a in an industry that was, you know, that was in its infancy mm. and and you know technically, culturally, you know aesthetically. So, you know, some of that you kind of have to understand to really be able to appreciate a film like that. But you know, it depends. It depends on the film. Um, your uh, nationality is Turkish, right? Yes. Well, I'm actually I'm actually British, Turkish American. As far as oh. <laughs> um, citizenship is concerned, uh, I was born in England, uh, but my parents were Turkish, and then we moved to Turkey, you know, when I was one or something like that, and I lived there until I was seven. So yeah, I'm I'm Turkish. Did you have any like cinematic uh, experiences when you were in Turkey? Do you remember any of those? Yes, um, I, I I had quite a few. In fact, you know, my parents my parents were film buffs. It has been asserted, though, uh, <laughs> though not entirely confirmed that my father was actually off seeing Last Tango in Paris when I was born. I, you know, I was a little early, uh, but um, but my mom my mom claims that he was off seeing Last Tango in Paris when she had to, you know, go to the hospital. He denies this. I don't know who to trust. I, I like the idea. I mean, Bertolucci <laughs> is one of my favorite filmmakers, so I like the idea of my dad being off seeing Last Tango while, you know, I'm, I'm on my way out. But... Um, in Turkey, uh, no, I mean, my, my parents were film buffs, and, and, and there was no such thing as babysitters. I mean, my, my grandmother took care of me when my parents weren't around, but, um, but they took me to, the, to see the movies that they saw. So I saw, you know, I remember the first movie I remember seeing is The Long Goodbye, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Okay. And I, and I, yeah. I mean, I, I remember seeing this movie. I remember being very, very interested in The Cat. Um, I mean, that's all I remember from it. But I remember the theater, interestingly enough. It was kind of this, you know, very cold theater. And there was like exposed brick on one side. Uh, you know, some theaters in Turkey were nice, but a couple of them were not nice. And that's kind of what I remember of this theater. You know, there weren't Disney movies coming out constantly and, and things like that. I mean, I wanted to see cartoons and animated movies and, you know, and, and children's movies. But they weren't that available. Uh, remember, this is pre-video Certainly in Turkey. I mean, Turkey, we had one mm. channel on the TV. It was black and white, and it it was on, you know, until maybe like 9 p.m. at night. It wasn't something that was, you know, you, 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 there, you know, there were no 
Saturday morning cartoons and things like that. So, you know, I went to the movies with my parents and, and, you know, they knew the kinds of things I liked. I liked sea movies. So, you know, we'd go see Orca the Killer Whale or, or Tentacles or um, Jaws didn't come to Turkey until later. So we got all the Jaws imitations before, mm. before we got Jaws. In fact, I didn't see Jaws until I came to the U.S., but, uh, you know, I remember seeing, I mean, my parents took me to see Apocalypse Now when I was seven, um, <laughs> you know, uh, twice. <laughs> so and, 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 and the other thing was, you know, they, they talked about the movies they wanted to see. This is the other thing. I mean, you're li- we're living in Turkey. You know, they're they're they're, you know, very kind of westernized folks. Uh, and, and they had lived hmm. in in the UK as, as you know, grad students in the 70s. And, you know, they were members of a Cinematheque in, in, in York. Um, so, so they were, and my dad had been a film buff. I mean, my dad was, you know, when he was 13, my dad was writing, you know, film reviews, typing them out in, in you know, in his, in his mom's Istanbul apartment and cataloging, all, you know, writing out all the credits and, and cataloging them in these books. I mean, it was kind of the, the original IMDb, basically. Um, <laughs> I, I st- we still have those books. It's kind of amazing. Mm. So my dad had always been a film buff, and he kind of you know brought my mom along. And I remember growing up, my parents talking about the movies they wanted to see, some of which hadn't come out. You know, some they, they knew these movies existed, but these movies had not come out in Turkey yet. You know, so Taxi Driver, I remember them talking about the Deer Hunter, I, the Godfather. These were films that my parents talked about seeing and i would i knew these movies by name when i was five or six Mm. um and then later when i came to the u.s or when we came to the u.s and you know they would be on tv or whatever and you know my mom would finally get to see the godfather i would be like oh is this the godfather let me watch you know i'm like a nine-year-old child and my mom's (laughs) like no you can't see this this isn't for kids and you know i'm you know screaming and and crying and and kicking the walls because she won't let me see the godfather um <laughs> so yeah i mean that, that i came very early to cinema I, I not that i not that this made me more sophisticated or anything it's not like i understood anything about these movies hmm. but they were you know they were part of my cosmology and I, I i had these these films titles and sometimes their directors and actors in my head um hmm. long before i could really appreciate you know what they were actually doing okay so uh... When you watched those films, did your parents like talk you through it or help you in some way consolidate your experience, or were you just left on your own to think about it? They they helped me to to a certain extent. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that they were. I mean, look when I when I sat down and I watched the Deer Hunter, you know, I was I was traumatized by 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 what happened at the end of the Deer Hunter. <laughs> But I don't know. I don't remember if I if I expressed that. So I don't know that we mm. kind of had a big. I don't think it was an issue of them trying to. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I asked questions and, and they answered them. The one thing is, uh, you know, it's funny. It's funny the things, the kinds of films that affect you and the kinds of films that don't at that age. Mm. You know, I remember Apocalypse Now really well. I remember all the you know crazy things in it. I remember you know the buffalo being, you know, chopped up into pieces. I mean that was. I mean, that was that is an image I will never, ever shake. But it didn't, you know, it didn't bother me. It didn't make me ask too many questions, I don't think. But then certain things did. Um, for example, there's a recording. My dad actually made this audio recording of me. You know, it must be six or something. And he's just taken me to see The Changeling. Um, the, 
this this fucking terrifying horror movie with George C. Scott, and it's about a, a dead boy, the ghost of a dead boy, you know, haunting his attic. Hmm. And and it, you know, it turns out, if I remember correctly, it turns out that the 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 previous inhabitant of the house, you know, this this senator. I I I I don't want to misrepresent the the plot of the movie. I haven't seen it in a while, but you know the boy the boy was I think crippled, and then he was and then he was murdered I believe by his father, and then replaced. I think that's the 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 back. So anyway, I just I just I think I just spoiled the changeling for people who haven't seen it. But <laughs> um, either that or I or I didn't. <laughs> um, but. Uh, <laughs> So, it, so we come home, and I'm I'm very taken with this movie. This was this was a movie that made a very big impression on me, and I go to my mom and I start explaining. I'd gone with my dad, uh, so my mom hadn't come. But I go to my mom and I start explaining the entire plot of the movie. And over the course of something like 30, 40 minutes, I, in excruciating detail, ex, you know, describe the plot of what happened in this movie. And my dad got this all on audio cassette. <laughs> and um, sometimes I'll freeze up and I'll, I'll, you know, be uncertain about something. And then my dad will try to fill in the details and I'll actually stop and I'll, I'll yell at him to say, stop, stop. I'm doing this. I'm going to explain the plot. <laughs> um, but then there's a point at which I, I'm talking about the, the boy, the, the, the ghost of the dead boy. And I kind of stop and I, and I think and I say very reflectively, you know, there's th- that boy was a little like me, wasn't he? <laughs> and my parents are my dad is just like horrified he's just like wait wait no no no. he's nothing like you what are you talking about I'm like, yeah i think he, there's something you know that that boy's a little like me for whatever reason I, I i somehow identified with that kid you know with that dead murdered child and my parents were obviously horrified by that uh but mm. um anyway it's all on tape <laughs> <laughs> did you always have an interest in like american cinema and hollywood cinema or when when in your life did your interest for world cinema grow out of you? It's a good question. I, I mean, you know, I was obviously seeing Hollywood movies. I mean, I was seeing Star Wars and, and whatnot. But, you know, in Turkey, you're seeing basically the, the only kinds of films my parents did not want to watch were Turkish films. And that mm. was this was a very common attitude among Turkish cinephiles. Turkish cinema was looked down on um, well, and I wrote about this a little bit in my my dry summer essay. You know, even as certain Turkish films were were winning awards at, at international festivals or, or gaining some acclaim, you know, the Turkish cinephile audience abandoned Turkish cinema um, or had already mm. abandoned it because you know they were in this world where they were getting the best of Antonioni and Buñuel and you know Bertolucci and and you know Godard. Why should we care about this, you know, very primitive cinema that's being made in Turkey? That's, you know. So those were the only movies that we didn't see. The, but everything else we saw. Mm. I mean, even crappy Italian sci-fi movies we saw. So uh, I didn't think too much at the time about where these movies were coming from. They were all kind of, you know, strange and wonderful and, and very international. But my, you know, and, and as I was growing up, I mean, as I got a little older, you know, my parents would watch Truffaut movies or Fellini movies, and I'd watch along with them. But my kind of very conscious and purposeful obsession with, with international cinema became began really um, when I first saw The Conformist, uh, when I was 13, I think, 13 or 14. 
and it happened uh, you know it was an interesting thing i i i had just gone to see um raising arizona i, w- I was a latchkey kid um so I, <laughs> I i you know i my parents were working i i left school and instead of coming straight home i you know took the subway to a theater and saw raising arizona and you know it made a big impression on me it was you know it's a fun movie it's wild very exciting and stylized and i came home and there was an issue of um uh i think it was the magazine american film either american film or film comment i i i used to know this i can't remember it now but uh, there was an issue of that lying around with a with raising arizona on the cover and there was an article in there uh, that I read, and I, I didn't, you know, I don't remember much from the article except that at one point it compared the Coen Brothers' style to that of Bertolucci's in The Conformist. It, I mean, it was an offhand comment in the piece. It was not a big. It, there was no elaborate description of why Raising Arizona has anything to do with The Conformist, but you know, and uh, there happened to be a, a video copy of The Conformist lying around. Um, you know, and I had some time to kill, and uh, I liked movies, so I put The Conformist in, and I didn't understand a thing about it, except that I knew it was <laughs> beautiful. I mean, it was gorgeous. It was visually gorgeous. Mm. It sounded great. It was alluring. The women were beautiful. I, I mean, I just found myself completely transfixed by the movie, even though I couldn't really make head or tail of it. And mm. and I sat down and I watched it again. So I watched it twice, and, and you know, by the time the week or a couple of weeks were over, I'd, I'd watched that copy of The Conformist many, many times, and I'd become sort of obsessed with that movie and with, you know, Bertolucci in general. And this was 1987, I believe. Um, so uh, this was also the year that The Last Emperor came out. So, you know, I became interested in Bertolucci and then, you know, found out that Bertolucci had a new movie coming out. The nice thing about that also meant that suddenly there was interest in Bertolucci again. I mean, it's interesting. This is a guy who had kind of fallen on hard times after, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, cinematically. Mm. But, you know, there was kind of a resurgence of interest in his work because The Last Emperor was coming out. And then after that came out and, you know, kind of won all these awards, little theaters here and there started showing older Bertolucci films. So I was able to kind of see those. But it was actually because of my obsession with Bertolucci that I became obsessed by Godard, and also by Pasolini, and my luck. There also happened that we, you know, I was growing up in Washington D.C. at this point. There happened to be a major retrospective of Godard's films at the National Gallery of Art around this time. I think maybe, you know, a year later. You know, so it's sometime in 1988. You know, this was a this was a fairly major retrospective. I mean, they showed almost everything, and you know, I, I made my parents take me to see those. I mean, I I, I dragged them. And not that I really understood these films all that well. I mean, at the age of 14, how much can you really understand of Godard? But you can respond to certain things in Godard, obviously. Mm. Uh, but uh, I became fascinated by these movies. And, I mean, look, when you've... Once you, know, once you get fascinated by Godard, then, then all the gates are open because he's such an eclectic and, you know, brings in so many... Mm. You know, you read... You know, you, you can read one essay by Godard and you can walk away from it with a list of 10 new movies or directors that you have to check <laughs> out. So that's kind of how it happened. And from there, it was, you know, it became almost like a little um, a scavenger hunt because, you know, this is the late 1980s. A lot of these movies are not available anywhere. 
Um, they're not available on video. Some of them are. Uh, some you have to, you know, go through uh, extra legal channels to find on 10th generation bootleg video cassettes sold by gray market outlets in North Carolina or whatever. And, you know, you, this is obviously long before the internet came around. So you're really, you, you have to come up with these interesting ways of finding these movies mm. and also, you know, scour the, the, the newspapers to find out, you know, when uh, some, some film that you've wanted to see for a long time is playing in some retrospective theater. You know, it was it was fun. I mean, it was an adventure trying to track down these movies, uh, many of which I, I I did not. I mean, many of which I found, and many of which I did not find until years later when they came out in you know nice DVDs or whatever. Um, and in some mm. cases, you were you you know the the films you were seeing were misrepresented. You were watching a tenth generation copy that didn't look very good, that might have been dubbed, that might have been it certainly wasn't letterboxed. Um, so you weren't really even seeing the movies properly, but, you know, you were, I mean, it was like finding the Holy Grail every time one of these <laughs> films came around. Hmm. So that started my obsession. And as more, as, more, as more and more films became available, you know, you would, you know, you would be able to enjoy those movies, but then you would graduate to the next level of movie archaeology. So you'd find them even more obscure, you know, so, so you'd find, okay, well, you know, all the Pasolini movies are now available but what about the Mauro Bolognini movies? When will they be available? You know, so you go off and you try to find those and that sort of thing. Um, which is, you know, I mean, I, I do that to this day. I mean, I, hmm. I'll still find certain filmmakers. You know, you have to connect with them in some way. You have to watch something and 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 admire the filmmaking behind it. And then you look at the name and you're like, okay, this is not a guy I've heard many people talk about. Let's see what else he has. Oh, look. You know, he's made this, 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 and this movie, and they're not available on DVD. Well, let me go to this site and see if I can find somebody in Greece who who made a copy of it or something. And 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 you're off to the races again. Mm. Do you remember how you came across Pasolini and what kind of spurred your interests in him? Yeah, well, Pasolini. Um, well, like I said, it started it started with Bertolucci because Bertolucci kind of famously had his two cinematic fathers, right? There was Godard. Mm. And there was Pasolini. I mean, Pasolini and, and Bertolucci, in, in an odd way, came up together, even though Pasolini was an earlier generation than Bertolucci. Pasolini had been a colleague of Bertolucci's father. Bertolucci's father was a, was a very prominent literary critic, and Pasolini, obviously, was a very prominent literary figure. You know, Bertolucci and Pasolini became friends, and Bertolucci was Pasolini's assistant on Accatone. And Pasolini wrote Bertolucci's first film, or actually he wrote the, 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 the treatment for Bertolucci's first film. I, I, it, it's often asserted that he wrote the script, but I don't think the script that Bertolucci is using in The Grim Reaper is, is the script that Pasolini wrote. I think Pasolini is credited largely just with the story on that film. And, and Bertolucci is a very, very different filmmaker than Pasolini, but his early films, I mean his first film certainly, is, is a very Pasolini-esque movie. And, and then a couple of films later, Bertolucci makes Partner, which is his very Godardian movie. And then, you know, when he makes when he makes The Conformist, he kind of 
makes a clear break with both fathers. And Bertolucci often talks about it, about Pasolini and, and Godard in this way as well, as his two kind of spiritual fathers. So it was through that interest in Bertolucci that I became interested in Pasolini. Of course, Pasolini at the time did not have the reputation of, of Godard. I mean, Godard was always Godard. And even though many of his films were not available, you know, you could find a lot of Godard films. You know, a lot of them were available. I mean, you could find Breathless, you could find Contempt, you could find Hail Mary. Uh, and he was also making new movies. I mean, they were being distributed sporadically, but, you know, he was still very much a presence on the world film stage. Mm. Pasolini obviously was dead um, by that point. So Pasolini was a lot harder to dig up and as a result became much more precious to me. And the first Pasolini film I saw was The Gospel According to St. Matthew, which played at the American Film Institute. And I, and I, and I went with my mom who also enjoyed it. Uh, but, you know, it's an amazing movie. I mean, it's one of his greatest films. You know, I am not a religious person mm. by any stretch of the imagination, uh, quite the opposite, but I, I found this film wonderful. Um, and I was taken by how unlike Bertolucci it was. I mean, Bertolucci is such a polished filmmaker, you know, such a stylized filmmaker, and and Pasolini is almost the exact opposite. I mean, he's he's purposefully rough, you know, he 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 is not. He's the. I mean, he's literally the diametrical opposite of polished. I mean, if there was anything polished in Pasolini's films, I think he'd he'd run screaming. Um, so so, and certainly Gospel According to Saint Matthew, even more so than those other films, because in Gospel According to Saint Matthew, he's really trying to almost, you know, imitate a, a newsreel style in in the way that he you know follows uh, the tale of the Christ. But but there is something there too. I mean, I I I, I responded to to that story. I responded to the melodrama. I responded to, you know, kind of the the blasted landscapes on which he he staged this 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 story. You know, I responded to the music. I mean, it's it's a beautifully made film. You know, it's it's a rough mm. film, but it's beautifully made. I mean, aesthetically, it's incredibly pleasing. So, I you know, I was taken by that and I was like, "All right, great. How do I see more Pasolini movies?" And of course, it's virtually impossible. So the, the, the way it then went was I traveled to New York once with my dad and I managed to see the Decameron <laughs> in some, there's, I mean, I don't know what this theater was. It was basically run out of some guy's apartment and it was like a 16 millimeter projection. I mean, you sat in this back room with a bunch of other people. It was somewhere in the West Village. You know, you watched the Decameron on a sheet uh, and, you know, every time there was a real change, they, you actually had to wait for the real change. I mean, you have to, because there was one projector, the guy had to take the, you know, the the, mm. the reel off and replace it and everything. So, you know, that's how I saw the Decameron um, with my dad. <laughs> and then uh, Oedipus Rex, I found in a, in Adams Morgan, in, in, in the Adams Morgan neighborhood of Washington, D.C., there was a, a Spanish language video store, uh, which had a copy of Oedipus Rex, Italian with Spanish subtitles, um, and I and I was taking Spanish in high school, so I could barely make out what they were saying. <laughs> I mean, it's also it's it's the tale of Oedipus. I mean, you know, you kind of know what, mm. what you you kind of know what you're in for. And then let's see, uh, and then Salo and Hawks and the Sparrows. I I found through this um, gray market video order store in Tennessee. I don't know how I came upon their catalog, but I found their catalog somehow. 
and it was a it was a it was a porn shop. I mean, it was kind of they 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 sold exploitation <laughs> movies. But then there was a little mm. corner. There's a little box in one of the catalogs, and they had John Rouge movies for whatever you know sick reason. I mean, John Rouge and porn. I don't I don't know how that makes any sense. <laughs> they had John Rouge movies, and then they had Pasolini movies, and they had uh, you know the Hawks and the Sparrows and Salo. And I and I, you know, secretly ordered myself a copy of both of those movies. I mean, incredibly, just awful copies of them. But you know, I was able to see the movies. <laughs> so that's I mean, Pasolini was was kind of the 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 real the gold standard of digging up obscure movies at the time. But then later on, the you know the, the films started to come out. Um, Water bearer films in the U.S. started releasing them on 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 video, um, and they released almost all of them i think and, and i don't remember if that's how i first saw akatoni i think i might have actually seen akatoni through another uh, gray market outlet you know mail order outlet but that's how i came to pasolini you know kind of a drip drips and drabs um over over the years but what's interesting is i mean that that the roughness of those copies and the the way that you almost had to unearth these movies enhanced of course the roughness of the films but then, and, and since then, you know, Pasolini is one of the best represented filmmakers on the kind of high-end home video circuit and also in the, in the retrospective circuit. I mean, I've seen more retrospectives of Pasolini films come through New York with, you know, pristine copies than I have of really any other filmmaker. I mean, there was just one at MoMA last year and, I mean, beautiful copies. You know, you go and, I mean, it's just like, oh... So that's what the Decameron is supposed to look like, right? And and <laughs> and and the same thing. Ha- I mean, the same thing happened with the Blu-rays. You know, the Criterion Blu-rays, uh, and then you know, Masters of Cinema Blu-rays. Although Masters of Cinema, I watch on DVD because I don't have a multi-region Blu-ray player. But mm. you know, they look amazing. I mean, these are these are the films that I you know when I was growing up, I thought of these as films as being just you know muddy and and just kind of grungy looking they're not really i mean they're rough in in some very purposeful ways but you know visually they're they're you know they look great i mean uh Mm. you know the trilogy of life is some of the most colorful filmmaking you know you'll ever see so it's been an experience i mean every time i see a pasolini film i feel like the circumstances have changed in some in some you know very tangible way do you have any familiarity or knowledge with his literary works and the like, uh, the intellectual Pasolini that was before the filmmaker Pasolini? Yeah, I, 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 I years ago I, I read, um, you know, A Violent Life, the novel. I, I have all his novels. I've only read one of them. Uh, I've read some of the poetry. Uh, you know, back in the day, I read The Ashes of Gramsci, and and you know, I had a couple of his collections of poems. You know, Roman Knights. Uh, I, I I had, uh, and then you know some of his criticism. I've I've looked through. You know, early on, I, I read I read and reread the cinema of poetry uh, many many times. Of course, I didn't really understand it because it's all about semiotics, and at the time, I didn't really know what semiotics were. Mm. But you know, I'm I'm familiar with a lot of his his writing, and I'm uh, certainly with his theoretical stuff, with his critical works. I'm always fascinated by how how sophisticated his criticism is. I mean, his theor- he, his his theoretical work is incredibly sophisticated. I mean, it's on such a high level. It's it's hard for me even now, after all these years of of writing about film and reading about film, and you know, I'm 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 at a st- I'm at a very different 
stage now than I was when I was 15 or 16, I still find the cinema of poetry almost impenetrable. And it's not because it's not well-written or well-translated. I think it's because, you know, Pasolini's operating at such a high level. And it's interesting that a filmmaker with with such, or, or, or a thinker with such complex thoughts made uh, films that, on, at least on the surface, seem so simple, you know? I, I, that's something. There's something very admirable about that. It's 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 odd and and very admirable because it's not. You know, you don't. I mean, if you read something like the cinema of poetry and then you watch a Pasolini film, uh, I mean, you might be shocked at at how, you know, how how simple, how fable like, the film itself is. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on there. Obviously, I mean, there's a lot going on on the surfaces of Pasolini's films, but. But he's that he's able to kind of discourse in such a you know direct, accessible way, is kind mm. of amazing. You know, mm. I'm wondering like uh, I've only seen Salo. That was my first Pasolini film, and this is my second Pasolini film. That's one of the reasons I wanted to start off with Ecatoni because I wanted to go back to the beginning and see how he got started. And I'm wondering how much his cinematic language veers off from how he's speaking through his uh, film criticism or can you see any similarities between those or are they completely two different things as you you were, you were kind of going that they were the one is kind of simple and direct while the other one is more abstract perhaps or more complex yes well also i mean remember his 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 language changes too i mean his cinematic language changes you know there, i mean there's obviously something very distinctive about all of Pasolini's films. I mean, they're all very clearly his. Um, it's interesting that you've seen Salo and Akatone because, I mean, that's the cinematic journey of Pasolini. It's interesting also, I mean, look, this is a guy who had a, basically a 15-year film career, right? Mm. I mean, not a long time at all. I mean, he'd obviously, he was already a, a, a very prominent writer at the time. I mean, he's, you know, probably the most important Italian poet of the second half of the 20th century. But, um, I mean, his film career basically stretches from, you know, 1960, 1961 to 1975. That's shorter than what Wes, Ander was, what Wes Anderson has until, you know, till now. I mean, Wes Anderson has been making movies for about, you know, two decades, if you think about it. And it's, it's fascinating. I mean, Akatone is in a very different world, I feel like, than Salo. At the same time, along the way, there there are pit stops along this journey, which are even 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 more strikingly different. In terms of Pasolini's criticism and how it reflects on his films, um, you can look at it two ways. Uh, you know, when he came to the cinema, I mean, he he had been writing uh, screenplays. You know, he'd been watching movies, so he was he was not a, a naive person by any stretch of the imagination. But Bertolucci says something interesting about um, the making of Akatone, which is sometimes misinterpreted. But, you know, he says something like, when, he says, um, I didn't know anything about how to make a movie, and neither did Pier Paolo. So, so, you know, the director and the assistant both don't really know how to make a movie. Um, I mean, they know a lot. They've seen movies. They know everything there is to know about movies, but they don't know the first thing about, you know, filmmaking practice. And Bertolucci says, you know, so when whenever, you know, Pier Paolo shot a close up, it was like the first close up in the history of cinema. It was like we were reinventing cinema or when he did a traveling shot. It was like the first traveling shot in the history of cinema. 
some have taken, in fact, Tony Raines uh, on the um, commentary track for Akatone takes this to mean that, that Bertolucci was saying that Pasolini was reinventing cinema and kind of creating some kind of new cinema, which I don't think is what P- Bertolucci is saying. And, and Tony Raines correctly says that that is not the case with what Pasolini is doing. But I don't think that's what Bertolucci was asserting in the first place. I think what he's saying is, you know, we're, he's saying we're kind of reinventing the wheel because we don't we don't know how to do a close-up so we do a close-up and we're like okay oh my god look oh my god a close-up you know it's like they're kind of going through the motions of recreating cinema um but they're recreating the thing that already exists they're not recreating a new cinema but it's interesting to think of it in those terms because so many people saw Pasolini's work as being um primitive um even some of the people who admired him thought of him as a primitive as someone who didn't necessarily have sophisticated cinematic language to work with and who who you know and if you look at his his films uh certainly Akatone I mean you know the shots are very frontal uh you know people don't tend to turn their back to the camera you know the camera just faces people head on if there's a if there's somebody if somebody's talking you know there's usually a close-up of them you know and then when someone else starts to talk then the film cuts to them talking you know it's like if somebody's talking they have the shot <laughs> um uh, there isn't a lot of overlapping dialogue there's almost no overlapping dialogue there's no kind of scene where the camera you know there are a couple of scenes where the camera moves a little bit but there isn't a lot of kind of going behind people changing of perspective there's a lot of you know very frontal shots uh when somebody moves the camera pans with them and they stop, the camera stops. I mean, these are, this is, you know, this is considered very basic film language. And to a lot of people, this is not sophisticated film language. This is not, this is certainly not what Bertolucci will start doing uh, in a few years. Pasolini never quite abandoned that very frontal, direct approach, though he made it much more complex over the years. But at the time, a lot of people looked at what Pasolini was was doing and and said, okay, well, you know, this is, this is, you know, very undistinguished. Uh, this is very rough. Um, in fact, Fellini was supposed to be the producer of Akatone originally, but Pasolini had had collaborated with Fellini. He had helped him with some of the, you know, the Roma dialects in, um, in, uh, in I think uh, Knights of Cabiria, and I think he'd actually helped him also with the with the uh, under with the Roman, uh, you know, the seedy the seedy underbelly of Roman society in uh, in La Dolce Vita. And Fellini, right around this time, because he's been so successful, is, you know, starting to become a producer and he wants to kind of help other filmmakers along. And Pasolini is one of the first filmmakers that he, you know, th- that he enlists. And Pasolini goes and shoots some footage for Akatone. And he comes back to Fellini and Fellini looks at, takes one look at it and says, nope, <laughs> this isn't going to work. Um, and... And Pasolini is is devastated by this. I mean, he is, you know, he, he this is basically a, a falling out he has with Fellini at this point. But if you think about it, Fellini is the diametrical opposite of, of Pasolini. I mean, Fellini at this point is the guy who's, who's you know, who's making films in, in, you know, giant sound stages. I mean, he's about to embark on uh, eight and a half. You know, this is this is the opposite the the direct opposite of what Pasolini is trying to do. So it's it's no surprise that Fellini didn't get Pasolini in that sense. So in these in at this time, you know, Pasolini's language we could say is very direct, even though he would claim it 
it's a response and a reaction to neorealism. I think it owes a lot to neorealism. I think as the years progress, his his language will become much more controlled, still very rough in certain ways, still very frontal in certain ways, um, very painterly in that sense, but it'll become much more controlled. His structures will be, will change. You know, a film like Teorema or a film like um, Oedipus Rex uh, is a much more controlled, uh, in some ways suspenseful film uh, than uh, something like Akatone. And then, you know, I mean, then we go through the trilogy of life, which is a whole other, you know, I mean, that's obviously that that's another podcast. Um, but, uh, and, you know, and then, you know, comes out on the other side with Salo, which is, uh, you know, the darkest of his movies uh, and and in some ways structurally the most fascinating, too. You know, Pasolini's attitude towards his characters changes a lot, too. I mean, there's no judgment on anybody in Akatone. And if there's one thing that Akatone, um, if there's one thing that Akatone uh, is distinguished by, it's the refusal to judge. And Salo is is a condemnation, you know, of everything. I mean, of, of all of society, really. So if you look at, you know, that journey, I mean, that's a 15-year journey from, from something that is very sacred, I would say, to, you know, the, the very depth of depths of hell. Hmm. Um, in Akitone, um, from what I understand, it's kind of an, a compilation of his, of his novels, the stories, uh, a sort of a recap of his novels with the pimps and the prostitutes and the plunders. And it represents um, the world of the Borgate, um, heavily present in his earlier movies. Yeah. And it's almost a, like, a, like a primordial pre-industrial society that is left behind by history and progress and we don't see the rome that is in the 60s we see we see the slums of it and it feels like this world that we're watching it's isolated from the consumer culture that is uh, going across europe at this point and this peasant culture it's celebrated for all its like poverty and violence and misery and the apparent amorality or maybe even he celebrates that it's because of that that it, it becomes one of the few places in the world that is resisting to this secular bourgeois morality and like consumer religion that is growing. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like, do you agree or do you feel like this is, do you feel like, I don't know how to express it. Do you feel, because we were talking about neorealism mm -hmm. and this, the world he set up is, it's kind of this grim world, mm -hmm. but he still shoots it with with a sort of grace and yeah. shoots it with a kind of beauty and he he doesn't find the world ugly he finds it wonderful it isn't that he's he isn't finding beauty in something that is ugly he finds it beautiful yeah. period yeah exactly i mean he what he doesn't that's the thing there's always this question people sometimes ask oh well you know does pasolini redeem acatoni is is acatoni redeemed i'm like that's not a question you ask of Pasolini. Pacatoni doesn't need to be redeemed, you know? Like, nobody in this movie really needs to be redeemed. I, I mean, they're, you know, they're they're sacred to Pasolini. I mean, he shoots them, you know, with the, I mean, that, that opening scene, or that opening, but that early scene where Akatone is, you know, jumping into the river, uh, you know, it's kind of famously, he's got the angels behind him. It's one of the few times that Pasolini actually shoots, a, shoots something that, that's, 
you know that that's so kind of symbolic and in fact uh, there's a there's an anecdote about his german publisher coming to visit him on the set that day and and being really impressed by how hard pasolini was trying to make that shot perfect i mean he was just constantly shooting it over and over again which also puts the lie to this notion that you know he's this primitive who didn't know what he was doing so yes you know this this whole world for pasolini is sacred and i think that's in many ways what distinguishes it from neorealism you know neorealism i mean look there are a lot there's a lot of neorealism in Akatone. i mean the the notion of looking at the the you know the part of italy that that you don't see the idea of casting non-professionals, the casting of the idea of sort of shooting with the immediacy of the streets around you. This is all out of the neorealist playbook. So, you know, Pasolini often kind of took pot shots at neorealism and tried to claim that his films were, were like the opposite, which is not true. In in 1960-61, Akatone is the closest thing in Italian cinema to neorealism. But it's not neorealism because it doesn't it doesn't quite have I mean, the the neorealist films are about sort of how miserable these people's lives are and, and, and the idea of trying to transcend them. And, and you know, there's something very noble in those films, but, but it's a kind of, you know, it's a very purposeful nobility. People are trying to escape these worlds in some way, often, not always, but, but often. And, and, they're, and they're kind of conscious of, of, of their, of this, you know, there's something, you know, you can, you can walk away from neorealist movies both upset at at you know the social injustice uh but also with a certain kind of hope you, there there is none of that in in uh in certainly not in Akatoni. mama roma i would argue is a little bit more neorealist in that sense but it's also very pasolini-esque Akatone, i mean look the plot is you know the, the the basic plot is about a guy who's lazy <laughs> you know i mean <laughs> you know i mean it's not like uh, you know, Akatone doesn't have his bicycle stolen from him. In fact, he's the guy who steals other people's motorcycles. I mean, he's not the guy. <laughs> you know, he's not. He's not the guy from the Bicycle Thieves. Um, uh, you know, or 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 the you know the pensioner from from Umberto D or something. I mean, he's not. He's lazy. He's a pimp. He you know he's not even a good pimp. <laughs> I mean, he's he's a, he's a bad pimp. And by any kind of standards of behavior, he's a bad person. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he lives with two women. One of them is, is like had his kids um, or, or, you know, has these kids. And he and the other is his, you know, girlfriend slash prostitute. And, you know, basically because he can't be bothered to work. And, you know, I mean, later on when he does actually go to work, you know, he just spends one day in in the sun and he's just like passes out because he just, you know, he can't do it. This is not the kind of character the neorealists would have made a movie about. And this is not the kind of character that Italians like to think of as, as living in their midst. I mean, it's not, but, and, and, and he's not, you know, he's presenting this in a completely not completely positive way, but, you know, he's rendering this without judgment. I mean, that's the thing. He's not, you know, Akatone, and the guy's name is, you know, uh, you know, I mean, the Akatone, it's, it's hard to find an exact translation of it, but it basically means, you know, kind of scoundrel slash pimp slash hoodlum slash, you know, it's an insult. And he, that's his name. That's what he calls himself. So he's kind of proud of it. What 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 do you do with with this character? Uh, you know he doesn't he doesn't judge him, 
he shoots him. I mean, he he plays Bach over the, you know, Bach St. Matthew's Passion over the whole movie. This is the same music, by the way, that he'll play in the Gospel according to St. Matthew or Gospel according to Matthew, not St. Matthew. But um, yeah, I mean, the Bach is is the is the is the Bach in Akatone, St. Matthew's Passion. You know, which is like blaring out right from the opening credits is the same same music that that's you know upholstered throughout gospel according to matthew you know perhaps a little more appropriately in that movie but but you know this is this is how pasolini sees these characters i mean there's something bracing about that even today even today i I think there's something very bracing about that um well we could talk we could talk about the men and the women and the men in the film because like you mentioned the akatone that that means like beggars or people who never do well or lazy or unemployed but it's like the men in the film, they they see this inability to provide for their families as that's something emasculating, but they're not willing to they're not willing to do a real job. Yeah. They're not willing to like step up and step out of this role of I feel like they're they're like man children mm-hmm. where especially in the beginning we, we where they, they're walking around in their swim trunks. Yeah. And they say, let's go for a swim. And they go past this group of children and they're dressed almost exa- exactly the same. Yeah. They, they look like miniature versions <laughs> of our characters. And it, it's like they're, they're trying to... They're, they're interested in their physical attributes and getting into fights or boasting about beating up women. That's something that... That kind of... That... Um, that's kind of a masculine quality to them, but they're this. It's like this bravado that is kind of disguising their own shortcomings. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I, I would agree with that. Uh, um, you know, Pasolini characters, while while they're very fable-like and very direct in that way, they they they're not without psychology. You know, I mean, Pasolini was was a you know was a big fan of Freud and and that sort of thing. So so he. He he definitely has thought through what's what's going on through these characters' minds, but it's interesting. I mean, when I Akatone, there's something very self-destructive and sacrificial about Akatone, um, the character. There's you know when he um, you know when he becomes fascinated by Stella, you know you you start to sense a certain amount of shame on his part, which is interesting to see. You know he introduces himself as Vittorio to her, uh, which is his 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 real name uh he doesn't say i'm a katone which in a standard character you could understand in a pasolini character why don't you call yourself a katone you know that's that's what you call yourself um but but nevertheless he introduces himself as vittorio there's something very um i mean he pimps her out you know he pimps her out but at the same time he's kind of in love with her and he's you know that that scene um, in in that place that's like a nightclub uh, where she's dancing with that man. Um, you know we can sense him. We can sense him getting very jealous, and you know you there's that remarkable scene. I mean one of the more symbolic scenes in Pasolini's early films, where um, Akatoni's drunk and he goes down. You know they they tell him oh you know go wash your face. He goes into the river and and washes his face. And then dunks his face in the sand immediately afterwards, and it's kind of the symbol of of you know how how torn he is and the, and the contradictions within him at this that are kind of starting to grow, right? I mean, he's he's falling. He wants to provide for Stella, 
Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of why he goes off to work. And it's also why he becomes, I mean, he can't, he can't do the work thing, working thing. So he becomes kind of a bit more of an outright criminal and he goes to try and, and, you know, as he's stealing that, that salami, you know, that's, that's when he dies. That's also not something I think you'd see in neorealism. I mean, neorealism, you see t- terrible things happen to people, but, you know, uh, you know, usually it's not as kind of, uh, buffoonish as, you know, stealing, you know, a side of ham. But again, I mean, the, the, no, you're right. I mean, there is that psychology and, and that this, and, and it's starting to kind of show itself in Akatone towards the end. And that's kind of what leads him down, you know, what, what leads him down this path and, and what leads him, what leads to his death, really. It's almost like if he hadn't, if he hadn't bothered to, you know, try and make a man of himself, <laughs> he'd still be alive, you know? Mm. Yeah, at one point he's saying that he's he's tired of this life he's living and he want to get a job but I don't believe for one second that this guy can handle a working life at all and one minute after he said this he's he's on the ground wrestling with some sexualized guy and it's kind of it, it makes for an overall rich experience but it's kind of hard to warm up to him and for me it's also kind of hard to warm up to the film because I don't know. I, I can't really seem to get under the skin of this guy. I can't seem to uh, make heads or tails of what he, what he's attempting to do, and it keeps me from really immersing myself in it. Maybe it's be, I don't. Maybe I need a couple of more viewings to really like get a full understanding of what is happening. But sometimes throughout the film, I feel like it veers off in these these avenues that I, I don't really understand and it, it feels kind of clumsy to me the way it lays the groundwork for the main story. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think I think those are those are valid points. You know, some of that I think is just the, the nature of Pasolini's filmmaking in general. But some of that is because this is his first movie. You know, he, he, he got better at that. I mean, he started to tell very different stories after a little while, but but he did get better at at kind of making you a little bit more aware of a, of a character's subjectivity. It is rough. Uh, you know, this is his first time dealing with, I mean, look, you know, I, I called, we can't call them actors really, because they're not really actors. I mean, he's, he's <laughs> taking people. I mean, Franco Chitti became a better actor as the years progressed, though, you know, this is, I think he's remarkable here, but he's not an actor. I mean, he's not a, you know, he's, he's the brother of Sergio Chitti, who was Pasolini's great collaborator during these years and, and, and you know, co-wrote, a number of his scripts and these are these are these are two boys from the from the borgata you know they are the they are two ragazzi di vita that pasolini kind of took under his wing um and they helped him this is their world right i mean franco chitti is playing a variation on himself i mean i don't think he was an actual pimp but you know he's basically playing a a, a character you know just a few degrees removed from who he is and and you know this is their milieu Pasolini is, is using these um, these these figures, quote unquote, actors for the first time. So there's a certain amount of roughness there. There's also, you know, it's interesting. He talks about how he um, and he he likens this to a mistake. He said this was a mistake, but you know, I mean, Italian films are all dubbed uh, during this time. They're not. None of them are, you know, direct sound. And Pasolini never never liked direct sound. I don't think he ever used it. But he also didn't like the idea of improper dubbing um and he hated the fact that um in uh italian cinema the actor very often didn't dub himself 
you know, the, the dubbing studios, people who, who they were professional dubbers and they were the ones um, who dubbed a lot of the actors. And Pasolini hated that. He hated the fact that, you know, one, he couldn't control these people. And two, you know, like, I mean, that's one half of the movie is completely in the hands of these completely anonymous people, the dubbers. And and in this film, I believe, uh, I'm not positive, but I believe that Franco Chitti is being dubbed by somebody else here, which I think Pasolini was very unhappy about. I know in later years, Franco Chitti dubs himself in Pasolini's films. But I think in this movie, someone else is dubbing him. So there's a bit of roughness there. Um, so there are these little, you know, I mean, quite aside from just the fact that, you know, it is a Pasolini film from 1960-61, so it's not necessarily uh, the smoothest of aesthetic experiences to begin with. But but there's also just these little, you know, rough elements, unintentional rough elements as opposed to intentional rough elements. So I can understand how you might, you know, it, it might not quite work. I, I can't remember if I was particularly taken with Akatone when I first saw it. You know, I I, I was coming to it having seen a lot of the other films and and to me the other films had much more of an impact they 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 seem to have a lot more on their minds than this one so it's kind of a dry run for for a lot of Pasolini's key themes it's by no means a perfect movie i have over the years come to really really admire it you know having watched it a number of times um and also having seen some of its influence the most notable screening of Akatone that i ever had was um you know, it was in New York. I had just moved here in the in the 90s, late 90s, and um, the the Walter Reed Theater here in New York um, had a retrospective that was organized by Martin Scorsese, where Scorsese paired one of his movies with a film that had happened to influence him. So, for example, uh, with Raging Bull. He paired uh, Rocco and his brothers, right? You know, Rocco and his brothers has the, the the story of the brothers. It has the story of the boxing, and you know, this is one of my favorite movies. Visconti is one of my favorite directors. I'd never thought of Raging Bull and Rocco and his brothers as being related, but suddenly, you know, here is Martin Scorsese showing me how it's related, and that was fast. It was a fascinating retrospective, and I'm I'm blanking. On, I went to almost all the movies. I'm blanking on what the various pairings were, but they, he paired Akatone with Mean Streets. And then I kind of opened my eyes. I was like, oh, right, you know, Akatone and Mean Streets. That makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, and, and obviously there's Fellini's Ivitelloni, which has been made um, a number of years previously. But, you know, you kind of have to look at Akatone almost as one of those, you know, early testimonial films from directors where, you know, it's often very rough, but it's often the movie where they kind of explain where they're coming from. You know, Bertolucci's Before the Revolution is, is one of those you know, so so, for all its roughness and some of its dodgier elements, I think Akatone has has you know, a very special place in the heart of all Pasolini fans for for that reason. Mm. One thing I noticed that was um, kind of a new experience for me was how much the tone shifts in even within scenes. Yeah, and going from like a very dour dour tone to more comedic tone to drama and then something tension-filled like the ceiling of the salami uh, where he, they're they're sitting on the street and they're kind of tired from doing quote-unquote 
work <laughs> and he takes off his shoes and then they start dogging him about how his socks smell and then it's kind of a tension moment where he's a guy stealing the salami and then they're going away and then he's off trying to attempt to flee from the police and he dies and all this happens in quick succession and that's that's some major shifts in tone over a short time span is that something that he does over uh, over his entire filmography or is that something that he would go away from he would go away from it and then he would come back to it okay i mean the the trilogy of life is filled with moments like that i mean the trilogy of life is filled with um sex and comedy and and you know really rough humor and farting and 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 you know shitting and and stuff like that and paired with scenes of horrifying horrifying violence too as in solo as well as in solo oh you have these moments where you don't you have all these moments that are they, they follow each other and you don't know whether you should laugh or cry or but that it feels it feels kind of different but at the same time it he he follows moments that are juxtaposing one another yeah yeah i mean solo in solo it's it's much much darker than and the trilogy mm. of life mm-hmm. um i mean in solo the moments of of levity i think are, are meant to be ironic it, it not so in the trilogy of life and not so i think in akatone in akatone i think what you're seeing is you know those those shifts i mean i think he's on some level he probably is saying look this is kind of how this world is uh one minute you're you're making fun of the fact that the guy next to you has you know the smelliest feet in the world and next thing you're being gunned down by the cops because you're you're you know stealing a piece of salami i mean it's the absurdity of this world so full so close to life and so close to death uh i mean that's kind of and that's probably in many ways what he what he finds so attractive in this world that it's close to 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 the absolutes of 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 both happiness uh and joy and 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 you know death and horror and sacrifice so the so so those tonal shifts i mean definitely at the end especially you know with the scene with the the foot which is you know it's the the funniest scene in the movie and then literally like the next minute akatone is dead all right i mean it's it's i mean that's a very purposefully done juxtaposition of tones sometimes you know sometimes tonal shifts can happen because you know the director doesn't quite have a handle on the material there i think it's it's very purposefully done you know and and these other scenes i mean you don't quite know like for example there's a scene where he goes to visit his his other family the you know his his um the family that he abandoned or or that kicked him out and there's that scene where it's like the, i mean at that point we're starting to get the sense that akatone is kind of becoming a little more self-aware and it's a very touching scene where you know he kind of hugs his son who's who's really not really who's kind of ignoring him he hugs his son and it's like this very touching moment and then he steps away and you realize that he's taken the kid's necklace <laughs> right and the necklace and it's not even it's not even just a regular necklace i think it's like a christening thing right so what what do you make of that guy you know i mean he this is this is the hero of the movie so so those tonal shifts are there i think it, it as almost like these confrontational elements that pasolini puts there because he he really wants to sort of show you how he sees this world at the same time they do they do make for a very jarring movie movie experience so hmm. um the the dream sequence that's kind of the last thing i had on my notes where i was surprised how much um it's 
it's a very like dream logic kind of storytelling, but there there's no kind of visual trickery involved. Yeah. It's very simple cutting and uh, there's no yeah, no uh hand behind the uh behind the curtain directing yeah. or doing any kind of tricks. Yeah. And from what I understand, that's something he utilized more in something like Saint Matthew, with all the, with all the magic that happens there. Yeah, I mean the miracles in in the Gospel according to Matthew are are you know are are shot in a very similar way. You know, oh look, you know there's a leper, and then cut to Christ, and then cut back to the leper, and he's this you know handsome <clears throat> guy, and then suddenly you know <laughs> cue the Bach. Um, uh, so, so actually, in, in that scene in Matthew, I don't think it's the Bach. I think it's a. Uh, the Misa Solemnis, the uh, African uh, spiritual uh, music. But yes, I mean, that is that is very much a Pasolini thing. I mean, look, uh, he obviously doesn't have the, I mean, this is an this is a low budget movie, right? So he doesn't have the, I mean, I don't know what resources he had for anything, you know, any real cinematic trickery to begin with, but he certainly doesn't have access to them given his budget. But also he doesn't like, you know, he doesn't like that kind of artificiality. I mean, he, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to go for an almost fable-like quality to this. So it doesn't make sense. I mean, the fact that there even is a dream sequence, I always forget that there's a dream sequence in Akatone. It seems such an un-Akatone thing to have a dream sequence, right? And it is, a, you know, it is a very kind of, uh, you know, it's it's a bit, it recalls the um, the dream sequence in Buñuel's Los Olvidados a little bit. It also has a, a, a weird, you know, almost Antonioni-esque quality to it, though I don't know that that's an intentional thing. Um, but it is an interesting thing that he, that, that he includes that there. And he, yeah, he, he doesn't go for trickery. He's, he's very, even though all these like crazy things are happening in the dream, you know, people are changing outfits and, and, and that sort of thing. And they're multiplying, you know, he's, he's cutting it, shooting it very directly, very, in a very basic fashion. It, it, it's, but, but then you think about, uh, you know, as you, as you watch more Pasolini films, you'll see, uh, as, you know, that approach changes a little bit in the trilogy of life, uh, which have effects in them, certainly. The Arabian Nights especially has an actual, I mean, you know, an extended effect sequence with some of the worst effects you'll ever see in your life, you know, with people flying through the air in, in such an uh, obviously goofy, uh, poorly done manner. But that was reportedly what Pasolini wanted. He wanted that kind of handmade quality to have, to you know, he wanted those films to have that handmade quality. He didn't want you know, polished effects. I mean, remember, this is the early 1970s. So, you know, several years after 2001 has come out. So it's not like the world has doesn't have the resources to have decent effects. But uh, especially with Arabian Nights, which at that point, you know, the other two films have been hit. So he has a real budget for that. But he he doesn't want to, you know, distract you with, with effects in that way. If anything, he wants you to distract you with the simplicity of his effects. Um, it's a it's a very Pasolini esque thing to do. Uh, how does it work? I mean, do, do, does does seeing something like that, especially today, is that does that take us out of the story to a certain extent? And and, and is that a good thing? You know, I, I don't know how an audience would have read that in 1961, as opposed to how you know you and I read it in you know 2014. A at the time, they might have you know, they, they, they might have not reacted at all, or, or they might have kind of, it might have jumped out at them as, as being very sort of simple. 
today, to me, it seems very refreshing, right? <laughs> in a way, I mean, look, it's dated a lot less than a, 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 a crappy state-of-the-art effect that he might have used in that time, right? I don't know that that was what, what was on his mind, but, but something simple like that still has a certain amount of wonder to it as opposed to, you know, some you know goofy process shot that might have impressed people back in 1961, but, you know, within 10 years would be hopelessly dated. So where do you recommend me to go next in Pasolini's filmography where uh, I've only seen two, two of his films? Would you recommend I go through it chronologically or would you recommend me going to something like The Gospel or The Trilogy of Life? This is a very good question and I never know how to answer this question. Um, <laughs> so so the, my favorite Pasolini movie and and this a lot of people would cite this as their favorite Pasolini movie is um The Hawks and the Sparrows. At the same time though The Hawks and the Sparrows is is very specific to to Italy in the mid 1960s. I mean there's there's footage even from, you know, the funeral of an Italian political leader in there. It's a, it's a very very I mean, there are all sorts of things going on in Hawks and the Sparrows that, you know, an Italian audience in, you know, 1964 or whatever would have responded to um, that to us is just like, what? But it's a marvelous, marvelous movie. It's a beautiful movie. Uh, I mean, just visually beautiful, uh, utterly surreal and enchanting and, and fable-like. And it, it's also very spiritual. I mean, it, it, it and Gospel According to Matthew kind of, you know, work together because part of this part of uh, Hawks and the Sparrows is a story of uh, St. Francis. I would say that, I mean, the gospel according to Matthew really still retains its power. Um, that's an essential movie, I would say. I mean, that's the movie that put Pasolini on the map. You know, the international releases of Akatone and Mamma Roma, especially, were, were very limited. I mean, they opened... In, in European theaters and in the UK, but, but you know, like the US, I don't know that they ever really opened properly in the US. So Pasolini, uh, after those films, was, you know, I mean, he was a cause celebre because he was Pasolini and he was, you know, every time he made a movie, somebody tried to take him to jail. But, um, but uh, you know, with the, with the Gospel According to Matthew, he became a superstar. And, and that's a film that, I mean, it's still, to this day, it's on the Vatican's list of, like, the 100 greatest movies of all time. So definitely see Gospel According to Matthew. If you like that, I would highly recommend um, Hawks and the Sparrows. I think, in some way, Oedipus Rex and Teorema, especially Teorema, um, are probably his most modern movies, you know, in, in a way that those are the films that, um, you know, somebody who's who's versed in uh, Godard and René and, and you know, the, the, that type of filmmaking. Those the, the, Te Rema especially, uh, I think, is a film that has aged really, really well. You know, and the Trilogy of Life is, is marvelous, but, but, you know, the Trilogy of Life is a very rough, you know, again, purposefully rough uh, type of filmmaking. It's easy to enjoy, but, you know, I, I think it helps to be better versed in Pasolini. I mean, look, The Cameron was the second Pasolini movie I saw, so I'm not one to say, but I think it does help to be a little better versed in Pasolini before you come to Trilogy of Life. I would say I would say next up, go to Gospel According to Matthew, Hawks and Sparrows, and then see, you know, see what about, see what you think of Teorema or Oedipus Rex. Now, I'm always, I'm always uncertain about what's available on Masters of Cinema. 
you know, because I'm in the U.S., so it's not, you know, like we we get all the criterions here, and 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 you know, I I I fill I fill the gaps with Masters of Cinema. But which ones, uh, which Pasolini's do they have available? They have, uh, from what I remember, they have uh, Gospel According to Saint Matthew. They have Oedipus Rex. Uh, those two are on Blu-ray. Okay, great. And then they have Hawks and Sparrows on DVD. And I don't think they have Theorema. They don't have Theorema. For what I remember. Yeah, Theorema, I no. think, is a, is a different distributor. Um, and they have the Trilogy of Life, right? Do they have uh, I think Criterion has that, but I don't think Masters of Cinema oh, okay. has that. Oh, okay, all right. So, uh, yeah, so... So anyway, I mean, I would say that then definitely go to gospel. Uh, I, I don't, I haven't seen um, Masters of Cinema's gospel, gospel according to Matthew or Hawks and the Sparrows sets. Uh, I imagine there are some extras on those, so that could be interesting as well. But um, definitely go to those. I mean, Pasolini is is one of my favorite filmmakers. He's a a, a, a giant in the world of cinema, but he's also a very very um, he's a very particular filmmaker he you know he either kind of grows on you or he doesn't i i you know don't kill yourself trying to see all these movies i mean if you've seen four pasolini movies and and they don't work for you <laughs> I, I i i wouldn't necessarily force myself to go further i mean like i said his his cinematic journey is a remarkable one for 15 years the films changed very much but in certain ways they didn't but you know they're they're all i would say they're all definitely worth seeing and uh you know, Medea is another gorgeous movie. I, I, it has huge flaws, but one of the most visually striking films ever. So if you ever get a chance to see that, certainly on a big screen, please, you know, consider it as well. Uh, I think we can wrap up now. So uh, where can we find you on the World Wide Web? I am. I have my own blog at ibiri.blogspot.net. Um, I, I write every week for uh, vulture.com. Uh, which is uh, the, um, the the pop culture site uh, for New York Magazine. I also write regularly for uh, businessweek.com about about film. And also uh, I've, I've recently started writing for rollingstone.com as well. Uh, but, you know, vulture.com is a good place to go if you want to see my latest film reviews. And, uh, yeah, that's where I am. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I've had a great time discussing the film with you. So Thanks, me too. Um, you can find us at mocast.blogspot.com. You can find us on Twitter at moc underscore cast. And you can write us an email at mastersofcinemacast at gmail.com. So um, until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>